Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. My name is David Flatt and today Scott Frizzell has a lesson planned for us. First Kings through the book of Esther as we continue our Old Testament survey. Hope that you enjoy. Thanks David. Alright, I'm going to disagree with David. I hate Thanksgiving. It's my least favorite holiday. Except maybe Columbus Day. Uh, but I don't care for Thanksgiving food. I think Thanksgiving food is the worst. So... Growing up, I survived on rolls. Like, that was the only part of Thanksgiving food that I liked. Um, now I have celiac disease. I can't eat rolls. What am I supposed to do? Like, eat the turkey or something? Um, but I understand that a lot of people seem to enjoy it. Um, Ashley has to work one major winter holiday every year, and I always request Thanksgiving because it gets me out of half of the Thanksgivings. Like, then I only have to go to two instead of four. So that's my terrible thought for the day. Now let's talk about the Bible. So I did the math. The, the books that we're studying today are written on the board mainly for me, so I don't get confused and jump around too much. But I did the math, and it's about six minutes per book of the Bible. But that's not really fair. I think we can do Ezra in less than that, but I'm really not sure about First and Second Kings, so I'll do my best. My goal going into this is to kind of make sure that we have a good overview for the chronology, uh, picking up where we left off two weeks ago, so that when we start looking at the prophets and the wisdom literature, we can kind of fit them in where they go in the chronology, but also to kind of take a quick thematic, thematic look at some of the themes that arise throughout these books. Um, as I was revisiting them this week uh, to get ready for this, I got really excited. We have more great stories. Um, one of the great things about the Old Testament is it's chock full of really entertaining stories uh, that you may or may not hear regularly. Uh, so we're going to jump into that. Now, most of our time is going to be spent in First and Second Kings. Uh, if you look at page-wise, that's the bulk of this section. Um, First and Second Chronicles are largely a repeat of First Samuel through Second Kings. Um, the difference is when they're written. So 1st and 2nd Kings are written uh, at the, during the exile. More on that if you're kind of lost by that. So they are generally more honest, like they're more open about the sins of Israel and the mistakes that they have made. 1st and 2nd Chronicles are written after the return and are generally very positive. For example, when Chronicles discusses David, we hear nothing about Bathsheba which seems a little odd. Second uh, Samuel, we got a whole chunk of chapters on that. So kind of different perspectives. So we're going to stick more with First and Second Kings because it's kind of the more uh, straightforward account. And just know that First and Second Chronicles is largely repeat. So you can go revisit that if you want to know what the official scrubbed history looks like and maybe some of the positives they're talking about. So generally through First and Second Kings, we uh, hear about every major king of Israel or Judah ever. Uh, most of them get a chapter or less. Usually they'll even get a couple of sentences even if it's a really short reign and it'll end with, and are not all their deeds registered in the annals of the kingdom of Israel or Judah. Um, but there's a couple that get a whole lot more, a larger treatment, and those are the ones we kind of want to focus on because they help us get a bigger, better picture overall. So uh, major people, Solomon, Ahab, Hezekiah, and then the two E's, Elijah, Elisha, who are not kings, they're prophets, 
but they don't have prophecy books, so I get to talk about them. All the other prophets I've done my best to leave alone because we have two weeks on prophets later on, and I don't want to step on anyone's toes. So when we left it last week, David was getting old, preparing to die. He'd been king. We really zoomed through there because by the time we got to that, we were super out of time. Uh, But you may recall, so he is getting ready to hand over the throne to his son Solomon. David's had a rocky tenure, right? He's made plenty of mistakes, but done lots of good things too. He's a man after God's own heart. He gave us a bunch of the Psalms. So Solomon takes over. Solomon's major accomplishment is building the temple, but Solomon's got a huge problem in that he picks up on the trend that we were seeing throughout 1 and 2 Samuel of emulating the world around him. Uh, We see that Solomon begins to take on a whole lot of wives and concubines, numbering almost a thousand, uh, which is kind of a lot if you think about that. Um, So... He's got a whole lot of wives and concubines, and welcoming in those wives and concubines from foreign lands, he also welcomes in their gods and the worship of their gods to Israel. So we're already seeing probably some fractures that are going to get sharper throughout the two books. So Solomon, uh, he reigns for a while, and as I said, he kind of gets worse and worse as he goes, kind of strays further and further. So that when he dies, we've left Israel in a kind of a precarious situation, okay? Solomon leaves the throne to his son Rehoboam, but Rehoboam is in a situation because The people are grumpy with Solomon. He's had a very wealthy life. He's had some excesses. The people say, we've worked too hard under Solomon. He's worked us to the bone. We built this temple, and yet we watched him live in this massive palace with his 1,000 wives and concubines. We'd kind of like you to let off a little bit on us if you don't mind Rehoboam. So Rehoboam thinks about it um, and asks some advice. He asks the elders who served Solomon, and the elders say, yeah, they probably have a good point. Like, you know, if you give in to them on this one, they'll be your servants for life and they'll love you forever. It'll be great. And he's like, that is an interesting idea. Smart move from the elders. So then he goes and asks his buddies who grew up with him. And he says, what do you guys think think I should do? And they said, oh, no, we need to ramp it up. These people, if you give in to them now, you're going to be giving in to them all the time, right? Which is kind of a philosophy we hear a lot, right? People say that when I let someone off the hook at school. Like if a teacher is really upset that I let, let the student off the hook, they say, but now they're just going to think they can do anything. Like maybe, or maybe not, you never know. Anyway, so these guys say, don't let them off the hook. Uh, they say, in fact, tell them, you thought Solomon was tough, wait till you see me, which is a recurring trend in Kings. You see someone say, you thought blank, oh, but wait till this, and it just kind of gets worse and worse. So Rehoboam decides to go with his friends and their option, and he says, oh yeah, you thought Solomon was bad, wait till you see what happens when I'm in charge, you're going to be worked to the bone, which just doesn't seem like a really good way to like win over support early in your kingdom, but whatever. So it just so happens that one of the guys who was leading the questioning, okay, so one of the guys who was questioning Rehoboam, his name is Jeroboam, which is really confusing and very frustrating. So Jeroboam is like, well, that wasn't a good answer, and the people turn to Jeroboam because he's been a prominent critic of Solomon and friends for some time, and they say, hey, Jeroboam, will you be king? And he's like, well, okay, if you put it like that, of course I'll be king. So 10 tribes leave with Jeroboam and they form their own kingdom in the north and two remain with Rehoboam in the south. So we've got the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Up to this point, we call the whole thing Israel. So that's really confusing. So the north, 10 tribes, Israel, south, two tribes, Judah. That's uh, Judah and Benjamin, okay? So that's the house of David is still in the south. And throughout the rest of the book of Kings, the two kingdoms are divided, and in some ways they have similar trajectories, right? They both have plenty of evil kings, but Judah has the redeeming factor that they do actually have several very good kings that generally allows them to be prolonged as a kingdom. Both kingdoms will eventually be taken over at the end of 2 Kings. That's how Kings ends. Uh, Israel will be taken over by the Assyrians, who are probably the worst of the two conquerors. 
Uh, if you look at any history on the Assyrians, they're generally pretty brutal, terrible people. And if there's any really inventive, terrible torture you want to know, look it up, and the Assyrians probably invented it. Uh, and then the opposite, uh, t about 150 years later, Judah is taken over by the Babylonians. Babylonians are on the scale of people conquering you, much more favorable, uh, and they don't even take everybody. They leave some people behind. So more on that later. So these two, these two uh, kingdoms are on separate trajectories throughout the book of Kings. Uh, and it's really interesting, probably the first uh, six or seven chapters after the kingdoms split in Kings, it seems like Israel's getting a new king every five years. And it's not like going from father to son to son to son. It's like people are like their official is throwing a revolt and they murder the guy in the sleep and then they're in charge. And then someone says, oh, I want to get that guy. And they come and they murder that guy. And he goes on. And it's kind of like that. Whereas in Judah, generally it goes father to son. They reign for a long time, even if they're terrible. Okay, it's much more, I guess, orderly. But one of the mistakes that kind of sets the north up to be conquered 150 years earlier and to generally be regarded as the evil of the two, right, is that one of the first things Jeroboam does is he realizes the temple is in Judah, right? The temple is the hub of religious life. And he realizes that if any of his people in Israel go down to the temple to make an offering, they might change their mind about following Jeroboam while they're down there. And actually has this great section of kings where he's reasoning with himself. And he's like, then they'll come back and murder me. Like, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they'll just stay there. I don't know. So anyway, he says, they're going to come back and murder me. So I need a reason for them to not go down. So he makes two golden calves, which sounds kind of familiar. And he puts them up in different places in the northern kingdom. And he says, instead of going to the temple, you can go to these and make your offerings there. Few thoughts. One, that's a bad move, right? We, you don't need me to tell you that. But secondly... It's interesting that this whole this this false god that they've worshipped before kind of reemerges, and Jeremoba even says when he's dedicating these, "This is what delivered you from Egypt," which is kind of a sketchy thing to say, right? He should probably know better than that, but he says that, and it's like this this alternate narrative that, hey, remember that golden calf that we worshipped at Mount Sinai after we escaped from Egypt? That was really the reason we got out of Egypt. That's why we were worshiping them there. So now we've built these new golden calves here so we can worship them since they're really the ones responsible for everything. You got to think God's not too pleased with that because it's not just a matter of worshiping an idol. It's a matter of taking the acts of God and saying, no, that was actually this guy. And it's interesting because throughout Israel's waves of occasionally starting to look like they might do something good and then being evil again, every single time in every single king it mentions, but they followed the, the path of Jeroboam and did nothing about the two gold statues. This sticks with the story the whole time. And this is the thing that most upsets God about what Israel is doing. Because it's not just a matter of being distracted or doing what other people are doing, which is kind of what we talked about two weeks ago, but it's a matter of taking what God has done and just reassigning it, okay? So, uh, after the two golden statues are put up, God sends a prophet, he, we don't know his name, he's a prophet of God who comes from Judah. And he goes up and he condemns the statues and he says Jeroboam and his whole lineage are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. These things are going to be burned down and all of Israel is going to be destroyed. It's like this big prophecy, great foreshadowing for the whole rest of the book of Kings. And you're just kind of like waiting the rest of the time. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And Jeroboam's like, oh, well, why don't you come eat at my house and we can talk about this some more? Like, maybe I can change his mind. He's like, no, God has forbidden me from staying here for eat, 
for sleep. I'm going back. I'm done with the evil that is going on in this kingdom. Not really relevant to where else we go, but he doesn't leave. He gets invited back by another prophet. He eats, he dies, and then they find his bones later. But sorry, you should read it. It's great. Um, so we've got this big prophecy hanging over Israel. And sure enough, within one generation, all of Jeroboam's family is wiped out. His son becomes king, his son gets assassinated by a court guy, and they wipe out the family so that they can't find someone else. And then they wipe out the family of that guy because they don't want his descendants taking over. It just kind of descends into chaos. And we wind up with Ahab, who we get a good chunk of kings to look at. And Ahab, it tells us, is one of the most evil kings. And one of the reasons that he does that is his lovely wife Jezebel, right, who we've heard of, right? Ahab and Jezebel. What they do is they bring in all of Jezebel's gods, specifically Baal. And one of the issues that God has most reason to be upset with Baal and with and that we hear called out about Baal many times throughout Kings is the sacrifice of children to Baal. We hear multiple times about kings of Israel who offer their sons to the flames, right, on behalf of Baal. This is something that God finds detestable, but also that these temples are built to Baal. It's not like they're worshiping Baal, but it's becoming formalized, right? It's, there's structures that are, de- that are dedicated to it, and they make up the center of many of these towns like Samaria, okay? So Ahab's generally a pretty bad dude. We know that. I don't have to tell you too many of those stories. Um, and Elijah and Elisha get involved, and they're both condemning him, and there's this drought and all that stuff. Okay, more on that later. So then God makes a similar pronouncement on, on Ahab, and he says, your whole family's going to be wiped out. Remember, he tells Jezebel, there's going to be nothing left of you. The dogs are going to lick your bones, which is a great curse. Like, if you're looking for something really catchy to say, that's great. Um, And then what's interesting is God uh, actually, so Ahab dies, his son takes over. And then God speaks to a man, he sends a prophet to a man named Jehu, and he tells Jehu, your job is to wipe out the line of Ahab which is a little bit difficult for me when I initially approach it, right? When you're putting on your New Testament Christian hat and God is telling this guy to go murder all of Ahab's family and his kids and his nephews and all those people, it seems a little bit heavy-handed, right? And in fact, when we looked at the Torah months ago, one of the main things that kind of connects with this in Leviticus is that God makes a commandment that he says, you shall not punish the son for the sins of the father, which is a little weird when we look at what we're doing right now in the book of Kings. What's interesting, though, is that God doesn't send Jehu to wipe out the family of Ahab as soon as Ahab is dead. In fact, Ahab's son reigns for several years before that is commanded and before it happens. So the way I like to interpret that is, yeah, he got a shot and look what happened there, right? Maybe he would have waited to kill off Ahab's line if Ahab's line had temporarily course corrected, but it doesn't. It goes worse, okay? Um, And what happens is Jehu's an army commander and he says, okay, fine. Uh, I'll go wipe him out. So he shows up and he starts driving his chariot with his army towards the city uh, that Ahab's son is hiding in. And he sees this army speeding towards him. He's like, well, that doesn't look very good. So he sends out a messenger. He says, go ask them if they come in in war or peace so we can be ready. And the messenger's riding out there to Jehu and he approaches Jehu. He's like, hey, I'm supposed to ask if you're coming in war. And Jehu's like, shut up, fall in behind me. And the dude's like, Yes, sir. And he just falls in behind him because, I mean, he's like army commander, right? He yelled at him. He did what he's supposed to do. So then he sends out another guy. He's like, what happened? Okay. He sends out another messenger. He's like, hey, do you come in war or peace? And Jay, he's like, shut up. Fall in behind me. He's like, okay. So he falls in behind him too. I don't really know what's going on. 
Finally, the king up in the, in the city, he's like, man, this is getting weird. Every time I send someone down there, he falls in with them. Oh, well, let's try it one more time. Surely it won't happen again. Of course it happens again. Uh, and then they're getting pretty close by this point. And he looks down there, and his friend who's with him, one of his assistants, he says, man, I can tell you, that's definitely Jehu, because that dude drives like a wild man, which I want to know what that looks like. Like, I know you can sometimes ID people driving on the street if you know enough about him, right? But like, what does it look like to drive a chariot like a wild man? Is he just like veering all over the place? Like, what's happening? So the king goes out to meet him. And he's also with, and this is interesting, the king of Judah, who's like, they were fighting a battle together earlier. More details, sorry. So they go out to meet him, and they're like, hey, do you come in war or peace? And he's like, I'm here to fulfill the prophecy of the Lord. And he pulls out his bow and arrow, and they go, whoops, and they turn around and they start running away, because now it looks pretty dire. And Jehu like pulls his arrow back and shoots it, and it says it hits uh, the king of Israel between his shoulders, and he dies. But then Jehu's not done, because he's like, man, the king of Judah was out here, do I'm going to take care of him too? He pulls out another and lets that one go. And he hits that guy, and he mortally wounds him, so he's not dead, but he kind of goes off and he dies somewhere else, okay? So then he's like, well, I did tell God I would wipe out the family of Ahab, so I should probably really get after this. So he goes into town, and he tells people, are you loyal to Ahab's family or to me? And they're like, uh, you definitely, right? We just saw him shoot two people, like... You're in charge, man. He says, great. Well, then the other cities start hearing about this. So they send one of the cities where a whole lot of princes of Ahab live. They send a messenger like, hey, we heard you just killed some of Ahab's family. We should probably talk about this. Like, and he's like, if you don't want to die, you're going to kill all the princes of Ahab before tomorrow. And they're like, okay. Well, they wind up finding 70 princes of Ahab and they cut off their heads and they take their heads to Jehu the next day. And like, here you go. And he's like, excellent. I'll stack them up outside the city. So everybody knows that God has delivered his vengeance upon Ahab's family, which is a little weird. Um, and then Jehu says, now I'm going to go deal with the prophets of Baal that Ahab and his people brought in. So he goes to the temple of Baal and he says, you thought that Ahab worshiped Baal, but wait till you see how I worship Baal. Big Baal gathering. Everyone needs to be there. If you miss out, man, you're missing out. So all the prophets of Baal show up and he's got fancy cloaks for them to wear. It's this big deal. And then he's like, hey, welcome all the prophets of Baal. Everyone sit, sit tight. I'll be right back. And he goes outside and he tells his army, go in and murder everybody. And they all go in and they murder all the prophets of Baal and they burn the place to the ground. And then they turn it into a latrine, which is just a great little touch to the story, I think. Um, <laughs> and all this goes on and sounds a little bit extravagant and is but what's really fascinating is that God commands Jehu to, to do his bidding to wipe out this family of Ahab and God says yeah I'm pleased with Jehu having wiped out this evil family and Jehu even mentions multiple times that he is fighting for the Lord, that he's doing the Lord's will by wiping out this evil from Israel. And God rewards Jehu, and he has four generations on the throne after that. But what's really strange is if you jump ahead, and I'm sorry, I'm stealing from myself here, though. This is in the Minor Prophets, which is me in three weeks. So uh, in Hosea, Hosea actually condemns Jehu and says that God is angry with Jehu and that he's going to suffer punishment because of his murdering of Ahab's family, which just doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it because he told him to do it and now he's punishing him for it. It's a little confusing. On the one hand, it's hard to think about the punishment of God and the wrath of God, right? He's wiping out these evildoers, right? I mean, that's just kind of scary anyway, right? We kind of look at the Jesus, the forgiving thing. It's like, I don't know if we should really murder them for it. Maybe we should talk to them about it, like urge them to repent of it. I don't know. Um, and people are kind of divided over what exactly this is. Like, how can we approve of it yet also not approve of it? Some people suggest that it's because of Jehu's heart that he kind of drifts into kind of bloodthirsty crazy person, which if he's anything how he drives his chariot, maybe that is the answer. Uh, some people suggest that he killed people that he wasn't supposed to kill, which if we look back at Leviticus, right, which is telling us about you're not killing a son for the sins of the father, 
There's certainly people in Ahab's family who are sinful and deserve to die, but he doesn't just kill all the sons of Ahab who are continuing to leave the country. He also kills Ahab's nephews, acquaintances, good friends, advisors, anyone who is anywhere near connected to Jehu. So maybe he takes his mandate just a little far. But whatever it is, it's a really fascinating story because we've, on the one hand, got this really bloody, messy thing going on, right? That's somehow the will of God, which just feels sticky, right? Um, well, to make matters more complicated, Jehu ends up being a terrible king after this. So his whole, like, I'm righteous for God and going to murder the bad people, it doesn't last. He doesn't do anything about those two golden statues from the beginning, and things kind of remain. Um, what does happen, though, um, is not too long after Jehu and his four descendants, right, who all have the throne after him reign, Assyria shows up and conquers Israel. The fatal flaw, right, is those two golden calves. That's the thing that never changes. There's a brief rebellion against Baal. There's a rebellion against Asherah, one of the other false gods. So it's interesting that they reject the false gods, yet they continue to ascribe God's will and God's, the things God has done for them to these two pieces of metal. So it'd be easy to lump it all together and be like, it's all about false gods, but I feel like there's something unique, right, about taking the wondrous signs that have been given to them and taking them and giving them to something else. And it clearly stays that way with God as well because of when he wipes them out earlier than everybody else. Also different from what happens in the South, Israel, they're all taken away. No Israelites are left in the Northern Kingdom, okay? And they never return. So that's just wiped off. So when we later talk about people who come back in the return, we're only talking about two tribes. 10 of them are gone. So whatever they did was a significant problem, right, that God felt that it merited that as a punishment. And as tricky as that sounds to navigate when you're looking at the story of Jehu and people getting their heads chopped off and whatnot, or maybe all ten tribes being murdered, if we believe that God is just and that God's not exceeding that justice, then there's something to it. One way I like to think about it, these kingdoms exist for hundreds of years. Children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are following the same steps. God actually gives them more than enough chances to right the ship, and they never do. And sometimes they even think they've righted the ship, right? Jehu thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's ignoring the biggest problem of all. So, meanwhile, while all that's going on in the south, we've got a roughly similar story, uh, but we have more good things happen. Um, Fascinating story. Remember the seven people, 70 people that got their heads lopped off? Uh, one of them, there's apparently 71, and number 71 escaped. He actually becomes king of Judah for a little while as a kid. Um, so that's fascinating. He's like related to Ahab's line, and someone hides him, and he survives and becomes king, and is actually a fairly good king, so maybe that was a good thing. I like thinking about that because then I go, well, maybe if this guy survived, who turned out to be pretty good, God made sure that whoever Jehu decided to murder was supposed to get it but then he didn't because he condemned Jehu. It's confusing. So uh, down the line, we hit our next major character. So Ahab occupies a whole bunch of first kings, okay? There's a whole chunk where we talk only about the prophets. We're going to end with them, sorry. And then we get a chunk where we get a whole bunch of chapters devoted to a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is generally a very good king in Judah. Um, and in fact, it's interesting because Judah is spelled for destruction before Hezekiah shows up. They've now become so much like Israel that God's ready to wipe them off the map and send them off into punishment as well. But Hezekiah is such a righteous man that God actually delays it. 
He heals Hezekiah who gets an illness and extends Hezekiah's reign because he likes so much what Hezekiah is doing. Hezekiah does a lot of really cool stuff that we don't have time to talk about. He builds a really awesome tunnel. You should look that up. Uh, he fights the battle of, with the Assyrians. Remember, they destroyed Israel. They come down to deal with Hezekiah. Uh, the Assyrian general Sennacherib, or as I like to think of him, snack on a rib, because he did occasionally eat people. Um, <laughs> now you won't forget that. Uh, is defeated by Hezekiah, like Hezekiah survives. Um, so God extends the line of Judah for several more generations because of his righteousness. I like that story because that reminds me that through all of this, through all this like really awful punishment for people, right? God's still a God of grace, right? He still extends the line and says, hey, this was good. I'm gonna give you four more generations. And I'd like to think if there were another Hezekiah, he probably would have done the same thing again because he was willing to alter what was gonna happen because of Hezekiah's righteousness as well. So Hezekiah reigns for a while, but unfortunately the people after Hezekiah are not so peachy. In fact, Manasseh, his son, is considered one of the worst. So they do all the things they're not supposed to do um, and end up, oh man, I skipped it. One more thing that Hezekiah does that's kind of cool. He's the one who shows up and destroys the golden calves, so the prophecy, and they find the bones of the guy that got killed anyway. So um, anyway, so the last few kings of Judah get gradually worse, and instead of putting their faith in God like Hezekiah did when the Assyrians attack, Hezekiah prays. He listens to God. He does God's direction, and God delivers him. The others put their stock in other things. Some of them reach out to the Egyptians and assume that the Egyptians are going to come deliver them, which they do once, but then they don't do it anymore. And some of them pay money to the Babylonians and say, if we pay them lots of money, I'm sure they'll leave us alone, right? And in the end, though, Babylon comes in, conquers Jerusalem. There's a few, like, half-kings who, like, rebel against Babylon. But in the end, Jerusalem gets flattened and destroyed. The temple is burned down. The walls are destroyed. Um, and the what are considered the favorable parts of the population are taken off into exile in Babylon. So they take the smart people, they take the artisans, they take people with lots of money, and they all go off in exile, but they leave behind all the poor people to work the fields and the vineyards. This is important, but probably not for today, for somebody else. So they take them off into exile. So the next period of the history, remember we're skipping over first and second Chronicles. Then there's kind of this dead zone, like historically speaking, there's a lot, most of what we know about the exile comes from the prophets, which we're talking about in a couple of weeks. Um, there's very little historical books that cover the exile, okay? They are writing these books during the exile. So all we know is that for several generations, they're off, they're in Babylonian captivity and then eventually Persian captivity. We can learn more about that, especially in Daniel. Um, but after some time, okay, a king of Persia named Cyrus, who's buddies with Nehemiah. Nehemiah talks to him, and he lets everybody, he starts letting people go back in waves, and they return. So there's this long exile where they've been taken from the land that God promised to Abraham. But God hasn't forsaken that promise. He sends them back to the land, but it's a time of punishment. And it's fascinating because this time of punishment is when they write First and Second Kings. And if we look at that story in First and Second Kings, and we look at the way those books are constructed, I encourage you to read them, A, for fun, B, because it's fascinating. Um, they're very cognizant of all of the mistakes that they have made. And like I said, they're very focused on the two golden statues. They're very focused on all of the false gods. And they frequently, when you think about it as being written by someone who had been told what happened, maybe by a parent, they're very repentant, right? And, and aware of those faults. And so that kind of helps us see that they're spending this time in exile, not just suffering, though, yeah, suffering, right? But learning, right? shaping where they're going to go in the future. And when they go back, three big things happen. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. 
Ezra kind of restructures worship and Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Um, I didn't talk about Esther. Esther is a fascinating story that happens during the exile, but we're not going to talk about it much. You could read it or go to VBS. Um, so all of that to say, that's our general story arc. So in the very beginning, we have the law, right? And we have this promise to Abraham, the three steps. Then through the rest of the Torah and Joshua, we finally see them get to the land and become a great nation. And then we see from, Joshua, or sorry, from Judges on the spiral out of control, right? Where everyone's doing what they see fit, where they're being influenced by the people around them. They're making decisions against God's will, but for their own personal selfish gain. And we see where it winds up with them. Not totally forsaken. That's important. It seems that way sometimes when you think about all the people getting killed, but not totally forsaken, uh, but certainly changed. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, and we are doing good, are the two other two major characters in the book of Kings that we haven't touched on, which is Elijah and Elisha. Full disclosure, Elijah is my favorite character, so I'm going to try not to spend too much time on him. But it's fascinating because these are two prophets who get about half of these two books together. About half of each book is about these two guys. They don't write anything else. So a lot of the prophets, they have their own book of prophecy. These guys don't write anything else. So we're kind of limited in what we know about them by what these authors who are writing during the exile tell us about them. And if anything, we can see that the respect for these two guys is incredibly high. There's a story where... Uh, it's really random, like just in the middle of nowhere in the second Kings, there's these raiders and this family's trying to get away and they're in the middle of burying someone, but the raiders show up. So they throw this guy's body in Elisha's tomb and his, he touches Elisha's bones and comes back to life, which is a little weird. Uh, and of course, Elijah, aside from the whole Mount Carmel thing, which is super awesome, right? Uh, gets taken up into heaven without having died, right? The fiery chariot swoops him up and out of there. So these guys have tons of respect from the guys writing Kings, and they're seen as very holy, but also they are the best examples of God continuing to fight for these people and continuing to deliver those who are righteous to him. Okay, Amidst all the death and destruction and violence that's befalling everyone who's turned one way or the other, those who remain faithful are ultimately protected. And that's important to remember. When you look at the multitudes of people being wiped out, it's easy to be like, well, God was just indiscriminately killing people. That's that goal, God of the Old Testament we've been hearing about, right? But really, if you look at all the people we know of being righteous, God is in their corner throughout this, all this mess. So Elisha at one point gets attacked by, attacked, attacked, attacked by an army of Arameans. Like a whole army comes to attack him and God blinds them all and they all start killing each other, which is great. Like, He's by himself. He should die, but God's not going to let him die because he's a beacon for righteousness, right? Uh, there's a king that tries to murder Elisha, so he sends a captain of a guard with 50 men, and they go, and they say, come down, Elisha. We're going to go take you to the king, and he says no, and God sends fire from heaven that kills them all, and so then the king sends another guy with 50 more men, and he's like, hey, come down there, Elijah, Elisha, and he says, no, God doesn't want me to. And then boom, fire again. So then poor third guy gets sent there with the 50 men. Like he knows what's going to happen. He gets there and he gets down on his knees and he's begging, Elisha, please come down. Feel big for me and my men. What are we? We're just do carrying orders. And Elisha says, okay, God will let me go now. And he goes down and he still delivers judgment on the king. They act with a boldness and a certainty in spite of everything that's around them. Okay. Probably the best example of this, Elisha learns from Elijah. Elijah is in many ways the best example of this. Early on when we first meet Ahab, and we still don't really understand how evil he's going to be, right? 
Elijah is the one who condemns what he does, condemns the gold structures that people are still forgetting about that are there the whole time, and decrees the drought that will go over all of Israel until he says it's time to stop. When Ahab orders a massive search for him, he's finding prophets of God and murdering them if he finds them, but many of them are protected. A guy named Obadiah takes several hundred and hides them in caves and feeds them. Elisha is constantly whisked away by God whenever people are close to catching him. And it all kind of culminates in that big story at Mount Carmel, right? Where Elijah goes up on a mountain and has the showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he says, whoever's God lights the fire of their altar, that's the true God. And of course, Baal can't light a fire because Baal's not a God. Uh, and Elijah prays to God, and he says, light this fire so that these people will believe and know that you are the true God. And when I read that again last night, and I was thinking about when he's praying to God, and he wants them to know that his God is the true God, I can't help but think about the two gold statues that are sitting in North Israel as he's saying that prayer. And he's saying, all those wondrous signs are you. Let them see that right now. And God shows up like crazy, right, and burns everything up like the rocks too. So, but then what's fascinating in the way that story ends, and kind of where I'm trying to wrap up, we're almost there, uh, is that after it happens, uh, Ahab's like, oh yeah, you're right, let's kill the prophets of Baal, they kill some of the prophets of Baal, he goes back and then Jezebel's like, he killed my prophets of Baal, go kill him, and Ahab says, okay, whatever you say, um, and Elijah is distraught, right, you probably know this story, and he runs away, and he's scared, and he goes all the way to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, and he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I've been faithful, and yet now they're going to come kill me again. And he's just kind of depressed. And I kind of relate with what Elijah's saying, because it sounds oddly familiar, right? Elijah's living a righteous life in a world surrounded by those who want nothing to do with it. And in fact, don't only want nothing to do with it, but think that there's something wrong and backward and strange about Elijah. And when he speaks out boldly for the Lord, it does not make people say, oh yeah, this is just Elijah again. It makes people hate him and it makes people want to kill him. And God just gave him the biggest victory of all, and yet somehow that still feels like defeat, because even when God showed up big time for him, he still realizes that he's incredibly outnumbered, that everybody hates him, that all these people want to kill him, and he thinks he's going to die. So he runs away, and God's like, sit at the mouth of the cave, I'll come talk to you, right? And there's the earthquake, and there's the fire, and God's not in those, and God's in the cool whisper at the end, which we could talk about that for a long time, but I'm running out of time. So the whisper comes to Elijah, and he says... I'm still with you. Like, calm down. In fact, there's still hundreds of people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. And in fact, he gives them an exact number. I don't remember. We could look it up later if we had time, right? But he says, look, you're not the only one. You feel like the only one, but you're not. And there's always going to be other people who are faithful to me too. So I think as we're kind of wrapping up this story, this section of the Bible that feels so very distant, because we generally don't see this happening, at least in Memphis or at least in the United States, the feeling that Elijah is feeling then hopefully should feel somewhat familiar as we live lives as Christians in a world that does not agree and that probably finds a lot of what we believe and say to be very bad, right? There's something wrong with having strong beliefs, and not just strong beliefs, but strong beliefs to say them to someone else. Elijah's not just believing what he believes in God and then going home at night and just talking to, I don't know, Elisha about it. Uh, Like, he's living it and telling people it, and it makes him scared, and it makes him feel like a failure, and it makes him feel like he's alone, and it's all for nothing. And that's where we can find ourselves if we put ourselves out there enough. You can find yourself there pretty rapidly where you feel pretty isolated. But what Elijah learns 
What God tells him is that there's always somebody else. You can't get so wrapped up in yourself when things start to go south. You need to seek those people out, though, which then that is when Elijah gives, when God gives Elijah Elisha. That's when Elisha shows up in the story, and he says, I'm going to give you some help because you need that connection. So moments like this on Sunday morning or any other time we're hanging out together are vitally important when you're representing God in an environment that wants nothing to do with him and in an environment that continually goes back to this big sin of not recognizing the power of God when it's all around them. So that's Old Testament history. We'll do prophets coming up next. I think I did good. I think I'm out of, yeah, I'm out of time. All right.